If you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to 1 Samuel chapter 15 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 15. I don't know about you, but when someone comes over to visit our home, uh, a guest, maybe someone who's not there usually, I end up spending, Wendy and I probably both end up spending quite a bit of time cleaning and tidying things up. Uh, You find out that the way you were comfortable and uh, fine living in, when you start looking at the house through someone else's eyes, all of a sudden you find things that need to be cleaned up that didn't bother you before. So you spend time sweeping and dusting and cleaning and tidying and doing all this work and and getting it ready for your guests to come over or whatever you do. And here's the interesting thing that happens. You spend all this time cleaning and they might come over and what is the thing that they notice? I hope they notice how clean the house is. (laughs) But what they sometimes notice and they may not say it or not is the little piece of paper that's on the floor or the toy that was left out or the cobweb and they wouldn't say it of course. But it's interesting, your very cleaning has kind of brought out to light things that otherwise wouldn't have been noticed. I mean, if you had left your house the way it was, there's no way they would have noticed that little piece of paper on the floor or the cobweb in the corner, or the toy that was out. It's the very act of cleaning itself that uh, suddenly these things are brought to light. And and, and I think there's something within us that says, you know, they're not going to say it, but we're thinking, you should have seen the place before. (laughs) I think about this when, uh, as we're renovating the Belmont building, and uh, some of you have went on the open house a couple weeks ago and visited it. And we had a couple different groups of people go. The groups of people that had seen the building a year ago, I think came in the building and thought, wow, this place looks great. I can't believe, is this even the same building? The transformation is unbelievable from what it looked like a year ago. I mean, it's, it's cleaned out, walls are going up, you can see kind of the way it's supposed to look, and it's, it's great, and it's appreciation. But then I think there's another group that came through or that comes through that never saw the building before. And they walk in and go, what a mess. Is this thing ever going to get done? There's boards all over the place and concrete all over the place. And, and it's a different perspective. And we, uh, you know, I think Pastor Brian and I would think, you should have seen the place before. Twelve dumpsters of stuff went out of the building. And, and the question comes up and you wonder about, you know, can't we get some credit for what was done instead of getting penalized for the stuff that was left undone? I think sometimes in our homes, you know, you clean up or some of the work you do, and sometimes you, we, we think that. Don't I get any credit for the stuff I did do instead of just getting penalized for the stuff I left undone? What about with God? We're talking about this morning. Don't we get any credit for the stuff we did do, or does God just notice what we've left undone? And nobody's perfect, right? None of us are going to get all of it right all of the time. So does God give partial credit? Life is hard in this world. There's a lot of things you have to keep track of. Something is no doubt going to get dropped when it comes to doing everything to please God. So does God say, well, at least you tried. I mean, is God like the parent when you come home with a, uh, maybe a C in math, but you got a one in effort, you know, that says, hey, you're trying, great job. Or is it that it's all, only the stuff that we left undone or leave undone that actually gets noticed by others and by God? Temptation is all around us, and maybe 95% of the time you resist it. But one time you give in, doesn't it count all the time that you resisted? All the time that you didn't give in? Doesn't that count for anything? Does God give partial credit? There was a man in history whose story is recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 15 for us who felt like he should get credit for getting it almost right. 
His story is certainly one of a person who felt like even though he didn't get it all right, he got most of it right, and that should count for something. His name is Saul. You might remember a couple weeks ago, I preached a message called Unexpected Answer When Getting What You Want Is Not Really What You Want. The people of Israel were asking for a king other than God. They wanted a human king like all the other nations around them. And God told them, look, if you get a human king, this is what he's going to do to you. He's going to take your money, take your children, take your fields, take your resources. And, and they still said, we want a human king. We want to be like other nations. Unexpected answer, God said, okay, give them what they want. So he gave them a human king, and he gave them a king very much like the one they wanted. He looked kingly. He was taller than most other people around in that day. He acted kingly. He went out into battle and led them to victory. But eventually, and as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 15, we find out that being king had kind of gone to his head a bit. He had forgotten that God had placed him in that role and that the people he was leading were God's people and not his. So when he receives instruction from the Lord, he feels free, it seems, to obey what he wants to obey and leave out what he wants to leave out. But what happens to him and how God deals with him is very instructive for us. Us who at times recognize that nobody's perfect, that everybody falls short at some point. The way that God deals with Saul and what Saul does is very instructive to us in our life today. I want to read you uh, the story in 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm not going to put it on the screen for you on this, this morning because I think sometimes when it's on the screen, you can get distracted from just hearing and following the plot of the story. So I just want to read it for you this morning and I want you to hear it. I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 15 verses 1 through 26 from the New International Version. As I read it, Listen for two things. Where does Saul fall short? And how does he try and justify it? Where does Saul fall short? And how does he try and justify it? 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 1. Samuel said to Saul, Samuel was the prophet, if you remember, that anointed Saul. Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came out of Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels, and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them for you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I am grieved that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone up to Carmel. There he set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, 
The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. Let me just pause there for a second. I don't know what you have pictured in your mind, but I, I just picture in, in my mind, here's what I have pictured. Saul, he's walking down from the mountain. His, the image he has set up to himself, whatever that looked like, is kind of in the background. And he's walking down. There's the sound of sandals on a dirt and gravel path. There's other soldiers around him. Probably, I'm imagining, kind of a jocular, you know, atmosphere of it's light. They just won a battle. There's a big relief, you know, and they just were out fighting. And so they're in a pretty good mood. And, and here comes Samuel, the man of God. And, and he, it's Saul completely unawares. Said, we did everything. Welcome, bless you. We've done everything that God had told us to do. And I really think Saul is, is, believes it. And he goes on. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? In this case, Saul's actions literally spoke louder than his words. Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and I brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God, at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, Forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. Powerful declaration and a powerful story. Unexpected judgment, I've called this message because I don't think Saul or perhaps those that would be reading this story for the first time would expect that God would judge his king so severely in this moment, but he did. But when we hear this story today, we might easily have more of a problem with what Saul actually did do than what he left undone. God instructed him to totally annihilate these people called the Amalekites. For the, for the diligent reader of Scripture, this is not a surprise. It was said in, number, it was said in um, Exodus and then again in Deuteronomy that God would completely annihilate the Amalekites and they'd be killed off for the way they treated the Israelites when they left Egypt, taking advantage of them and killing them when they were in a weak state instead of showing kindness to them. So here God makes good on his 400-year-old promise and orders Saul to fight and destroy them completely. To our modern ears, this is a strange order to hear from the lips of God. Even when we recognize the violence of the times, 
the lack of clear geopolitical boundaries, the fact that conquering a land often meant ridding it of its people, we shrink back at a military order to kill everyone, including women and children. Surely any military leader worth his salt today would consider it his duty as a human to disobey such a harsh and gruesome order. Yet harsh and gruesome does not always mean unjustified and unnecessary, does it? The truth is humans themselves make decisions like this without the absolute knowledge that God has. It's harsh to send 2,000 volts of electricity through a person's body in order for the government to end their life, and yet people have decided at times it's justified. You may go one side or the other, but the bottom line is, as a society at times, we have made that decision. In fact, obviously, the one that's most present is the one that happened last Friday where a jury of citizens from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts arguably would pride itself on being one of the more tolerant and uh, states in our union, uh, maybe one of the more uh, pride itself on being one of the more liberal and compassionate states in our union, yet that jury decided that the crimes of young man Zokars and I have warranted him dying. And there are people on both sides that would say, well, no, we, we have no right to take someone's life. We have no right to, 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 to do that. And yet there are people on the other side that would say with the severity of the crime and the chance that it might, if left alive, might lead to more evil in some way. The victims that are involved demand the most severe punishment, so the death penalty is what's called for. There are times as humans we have decided that death is what's called for. But you say, yeah, but in that case there's a, there's a trial, there's guilt, and the guilty are being punished and not the innocent, and, yes, there are, and yet there are times in our history where other harsh and gruesome acts have been committed and there has not been such a distinction. It was not that long ago that a decision was made that in order to end a war, that the only route and the word of last resort was to drop two atomic bombs on two cities in the empire of Japan. Bombs that did not discriminate between soldier and citizen, soldier and woman, or soldier and Women are warmonger and children, bombs that simply annihilated people. And there are times in our history, right or wrong, or the way you would argue it, that humans themselves have made the decision to bring judgment on people, and it's been harsh, and it's been gruesome, and yet there are many that would argue that it has not been at times unjustified. The problem is when we come to a passage like this and we look at God and these words on God's lips, we elevate our judgment over God's judgment. We, for some reason at times, think we have the ability to choose and decide justice and mete it out, but we pass judgment on God himself when he attempts and orders it done. We decide what deserves a certain penalty, but at times have trouble when God himself sets the penalty. At certain times in history, it's been justified by men, and if by men, how much more by God who has perfect knowledge and has been sinned against by all. For some reason, at times in our life, we would make the choice that crimes against humanity are greater than treason, cosmic treason against a holy God and the sins against God. One commentator put this this way, this is not ethnic cleansing, it was an ethical judgment. They were not killed because they were Amalekites, they were ordered judged because they had committed a grave sin against God and his people. Perhaps the reason we minimize God's right to judge in this situation is because we actually minimize 
sin. So the Amalekites killed some in the past, some people in the past. Isn't God escalating things and making a mountain out of a molehill? Or is the right perspective that we try to make God's mountain of how serious sin is into molehills that don't really matter that much? The command to kill the Amalekites is really a small-scale picture of divine judgment on one group of people. The larger truth that should grip us is that God teaches us in his word that there is one day coming when all people in the world will no longer be allowed to live in this world as presently constituted and everyone will be judged. Not just one particular group of people. That should be what really frightens us. God has the right and ability to judge people in this world and he's completely just in doing so. But the other question that probably comes to your mind as it came to mine is if God gave the order then, could he give it today? Can someone say they heard God tell them to kill off a particular group of people? It's certainly an argument that's been used not too long ago by people who try and twist the scriptures and saying it's God's judgment on people and this nation is to be judged and these people are to be eliminated and it's according to God's word. Groups in modern history have tried to use this logic today. They would say, isn't God the same yesterday, today, and forever? God doesn't change, right? So if God ordered it then, for the Amalekites, couldn't he order it today? And to that, I would say, God is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever, he does not change. But the cross changed things in this world. And the cross changed everything. Our time is now, in some ways, the same, but in other ways, very different than life before the cross. It's the same in that he is still going to judge all the people just as the Amalekites were judged. But living in the new covenant, we are told that it is Jesus who will carry out that judgment, not us as people. Acts chapter 17 and verse 31 says this, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead, obviously pointing to Jesus as the one who will be the once and final judge of all the world. Judgment is still coming. God has not changed that, but it's coming through Jesus when he comes again. We are called on this side of the cross by our Lord Jesus to turn the other cheek, to pray for our enemies, to leave vengeance to the Lord, and fight a spiritual battle, not one of the flesh. Jesus said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the left cheek, turn to him the other also. It's a different time. The cross has changed things. At this point in history, God was using one particular nation and people group to be a light to the whole world. Now he has called a people who are many and who are in many and eventually will be in every nation of the world before he comes again. The divisions no longer correspond to national boundaries as they did in the old covenant. God's followers permeate every nation on earth. So we sometimes have more of a problem with Saul's obedience than with his disobedience. And I think it's important that we're able to somewhat put that, get past a little bit of that obstacle because many would come to this passage and say, if there's a God who would give an order to kill people, including women and children, then I don't want anything to do with that God. That is an argument that if you have not heard, you will hear from people who are atheists, or choose not to follow God. And so an answer is important to have for it. There are times when God has judged. There will be more judgment. But God is not unjustified in his judgment. Saul, however, was not chastened by God for what he did do, but rather for what he failed to do. 
The order was to destroy all the animals and the people. Saul kept the king alive and he kept the best animals for himself. He did what God wanted with all the weak and worthless animals, but the ones that were useful and valuable he kept. So he was willing to do what God asked when it didn't cost him anything, but when it came to something of value, he couldn't do it. People are sometimes like that, I suppose. We're willing to do what God wants as long as it doesn't cost us anything. But as soon as it's something valuable, and we think twice. Pastor, does the church want my old couch? Well, how about your new couch? <laughs> I don't want to give the new couch to the church. Give the old couch to the church. We're willing to often give away things that cost us nothing, but when it comes to things of value, it's harder at times. And so it was with Saul. Animals that were weak and diseased, well, we don't want them anyway. God wants us to kill them. Let's kill them. Animals that were fat and valuable, well, we'll just let them soldiers take those for themselves. For Samuel and for the Lord, it wasn't about the sheep or the king. It was about Saul's heart and whether or not God could trust him to obey his word. It's about whether or not God had Saul's heart or something else did. And here's the bottom line. This is what Samuel was essentially saying to Saul. This is what I think the big idea of 1 Samuel chapter 15 is. Your partial obedience, Saul, is full disobedience. Your partial obedience to God's word is really full disobedience to God's word. Doesn't God know that nobody's perfect? A better question is, why is something that is so important to God <clears throat> seem like not a big deal to us? Why is something that is so important to God that he is willing to say, I reject you as king over my people? <clears throat> why is it that we come to that and say, is it really that big of a deal? Sheep, cattle, a king? I mean, he did everything else. Why is it that it's so important to God that it's not a big deal to us? The answer lies in the fact that God's perspective is different than ours. Another story that's been in the news this past week you may have heard about, been termed deflate gate. If you're not familiar with it, I'm not going to go into it because it's not worth the breath that it would take to do so. <laughs> but let me just use it this way. I bring it up for this purpose because there are six states in the United States that think letting some air out of a football by a quarterback or somebody uh, under the orders of the quarterback, well, what's the big deal? No big deal. I mean, it wouldn't give them that much of an advantage if people put sticky on the towel, stick them on the gloves. They do all kinds of things to get competitive advantage, pipe noise in the stadium. This is no big deal. And we try and minimize it. And even now, if that's you, there is anger going up inside of you because of the Patriots fan. You're saying, but, but it's not just us. There are other people in the country that think the same thing. And there are 44 other states in the union that seem justified in saying this punishment was just and it should have been even harsher than this. It's a matter of perspective. It's hard to see that maybe from your perspective or from mine but it's a matter of perspective. We very easily want to excuse things for our benefit that are our benefit and say, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's a small deal. But it seems like a big deal to others. Sometimes what seems like a small deal to us is a big deal to God. We are human, and from a human perspective, we're more likely to understand that perspective and write it off as not a big deal. If you are a holy God, any small attack on your holiness is a big deal. But we see it from our perspective. Let me give you another example. It's like children and parents. Sometimes I'll say to my, one of my children, would you put your dish in the sink before you go to your room, please? And they pick up their dish, and they put it on the counter. And they go to their room. Now, I have a choice in that moment. <laughs> Honestly, sometimes I just let the dish stay there. Other times, I will walk by that dish. 
I will walk by the sink that I very easily could have just taken the dish and put it in the sink, but I will walk right by it. I will walk down the hall. I will walk into their room, and I will say, could you please come back and put your dish in the sink like I asked you? I will deal with the stomping feet and the moaning face until they come back and they pick up the dish and put it in the sink and stomp back to their room. Why? Why would I do this? Because my perspective is different than theirs. Would you please put your dirty clothes in the hamper? Not on the floor, on the hamper, in the hamper. Would you please come back and now put your dirty clothes in the hamper? Why? Is it a big deal? Would it be hard? No. It would be much easier for me to pick up the clothes and put them in the hamper than the energy it takes to tell them this and the emotional energy it's going to take and the interchange to convince them to do this. But why? Because my perspective is different. Because it's not about a plate and it's not about laundry. It's about a task that I have been called to as their parents to develop them into responsible children who will become responsible young men and young women who will grow up in this world and not only understand their responsibility as part of it. It's my room, yes, but it's my house. And so you have a responsibility as a part of that to be able to help them to understand that listening to the authority that God has placed in your life to help you is what you need to do to live your life in the way that God has called you to do it. This is my task. Not to make sure that a plate gets put in the sink, but to recognize that at times putting your dirty clothes in the hamper is not really about one pile of clothes missing the basket. It's really a small act of rebellion that's an affront to all that person has been put there to accomplish in that person's life. It's the same with God. Letting the sheep live wasn't really about the sheep. It was really about an affront and a rebellion against God's word and a rebellion against God himself. See, partial obedience is full disobedience. It's, it's like this week I went to uh, get my hair cut and I was, uh, afterwards I was paying the stylist and she went to run my card and she said, oh, it was a partial swipe. I've got to run it again. And I said, wait, wait a second. Do you mean when it, when it goes through partially that it doesn't go through at all? And she said, yes. I said, well, you just gave me an illustration for my sermon Sunday. <laughs> and she said, I did? I said, yes, because partial obedience is full disobedience and partial obedience doesn't accomplish anything. And if you're telling me when you partially swipe my card, it's like not swiping it at all. That's the same thing. A haircut may cost 20 bucks and a partial swipe doesn't get her 15. It gets her zero. Partial obedience doesn't cut it doesn't get it done. It's like when you're filling out an online form on, uh, on your computer and there's 10 boxes to fill out and you fill out nine of them and then you click submit. You know what happens. It's bringing you back to the one box you left empty and in red letters it tells you you must complete this to submit this form because partially filled out doesn't count. Partial obedience doesn't count. It's like if Wendy sends me to the store to get ingredients for a cake and there's 10 things on the list and I come back with nine. It doesn't work. She'd say, that's great, but I can't make a cake with nine ingredients. I need 10. She says, go back to the store. Get the other ingredient. It's like I never went to the store in the first place. <laughs> I have to go back. And get the last one. Because partial ingredients does not get it done and partial obedience is like full disobedience. That's what God's trying to get across. Yeah, you did most of what I said, Saul, but you left part of it undone. And that part you left undone is a rejection of my word to you. So if it's true that partial obedience is full disobedience and God calls us to full obedience to please him, then the question must be answered, why are we so often only obedient in part? Why are we so often partially obedient? Let me very quickly, and I'm going to do this very quickly, give you five things that cause us to be partially obedient. 
Verse 15 of chapter 15 says this, Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. He tries to justify it. I think some of the same reasons Saul uses are the same ones we use for partial obedience. Five, five things that lead to partial obedience in your life and my life very quickly. This is it. Number one, there's a disconnect between Sunday and Monday. Our life in church and our life outside the church is seen as disconnected. Saul, I think, saw it as he was out just doing king and soldier stuff. I mean, he wasn't doing God stuff. We do the God stuff at the temple. We do the God stuff with the sacrifices. He was out doing king and soldier stuff, not God stuff. And so he didn't see it that way. So when Samuel walks up to him and he says, hey, Samuel, good to see you. We did everything God said. Every aspect of what he did or did not do is God stuff. I think sometimes we're led to partial obedience because we don't see the connection between Sunday and Monday. Go to Sunday and do God stuff. Go to church, give in the offering, hear about missions around the world, see some people, pray for some people, encourage some people. That's God stuff. We do that on Sunday, but on Monday, we sometimes have a disconnect. And if there's a disconnect there, that Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday isn't God stuff, then we could fall into partial obedience. Selling a car, teaching a biology class, working in a lab, taking a test, delivering a package, bagging groceries, hiring staff, balancing a budget, making a sale. It's all God's stuff because we're to do it for God's glory. What we do and the way we do it must be for God's glory. But God didn't give any instructions on how to sell a copy machine. Oh, really? When selling a copy machine, does honesty ever come into play? Truth, kindness, patience. Does God have anything to say about those things? Well, you might say, I, I wasn't completely honest, but I was kind and I was patient. Well, partial obedience is full disobedience. So God calls us to God's stuff during the week, that everything we do is God's stuff. There is no separation, but when we make a separation, we're in danger of partial obedience. Second thing that uh, causes us partial obedience, putting our common sense over God's wisdom. Uh, Saul said, well, you got to keep the good animals. I mean, what's the sense? We're just going to kill them and leave them here? Uh, what, what a waste. God, you know, why, why would we waste these animals? We can use these animals. And so he elevates his common sense over God's wisdom and it leads him to partial obedience. Two people, they're going to get married. They know they're going to get married. But they also know that God has said, you know, the relationship between a man and a woman, a covenant, intimate relationship is meant to be lived out in a faithful marriage covenant. But they say, it's much cheaper if we pay one rent rather than two. We can get married even quicker because we'll save money for the wedding and we'll be able to give more money to God that way too. We elevate common sense over God's wisdom and we end up in partial obedience in our life. And it happens. It happens when we look at things and suddenly we have elevated our common sense over God's wisdom and we end up in partial obedience. God says obedience is better than sacrifice. Third thing, making our desires God's desires. At first you may say, well, why is that, why is that bad? Because it really should be the other way around. We need to make God's desires our desires. But what sometimes leads to partial obedience is when we make our desires and we project those onto surely this is what God would want. If what you want and God wants always agrees, you may have reached complete sainthood. 
or you may be a little delusional. If there aren't at least some times in your life where you feel like God is calling you to something that is difficult for you to do, you may not always be hearing the voice of God. Because God will call you to do things that are not always easy and don't always, aren't always easy for you to do and don't always line up with what you would like to do. And yet he calls you to those places. His voice is different than yours. But sometimes we get so used to hearing our own voice that we fail to hear God's voice. Spending time in the Word, spending time in church, spending time listening to what God says helps us to know that. We can be so delusional that we would in our own disobedience try to justify it as what we're doing for God. We convince ourselves that we're actually living for God when in reality we're living for ourselves. God does not need us to break his laws in order for his will to get done. Fourth, the reason Saul gave a fear of other people. Verse 24, Saul says that he was afraid of the people, so he gave in to them. We give God partial obedience because we're afraid of other people. Peer pressure causes us compromise in areas and leads us to give God partial obedience. Jesus said, don't be afraid of people who can kill the body. Worry about the one who can destroy and kill the soul. Don't worry about the ones that affect just life in this world. Keep perspective that eternity is at stake. And so a fear of other people, what other people will think, what other people will say about you can cause us to be partially obedient to God in certain places. And finally, fifthly, Thinking our religious actions make up for our rejection of God's word leads us to partial obedience. Well, Saturday night was wild and rough, and there were some things that I'm pretty glad that some people that know me in church weren't there. But I'm going to church on Sunday, and I'll give a little more in the offering, and I'll spend a little more time in prayer, and I'll sing a little louder, and I'll pray a little harder. And sometimes we think our religious actions make up for our rejection of God's word. And Saul certainly did. He didn't listen to God's word when he said killing all the animals. But hey, we're going to sacrifice some to God. We're going to bring them and we're going to sacrifice them to God. And somehow that will make it right. And it doesn't. Religious actions don't make up for rejection of God's word. They didn't for Saul. And they don't for us either. Partial obedience is full disobedience for Saul and it is for us too. So where in your life are you giving partial obedience? Where in your life, ask God to search your heart and reveal anything that's displeasing to him. Where are you turning a blind eye? You may not know, I just learned this some of you may know what the, where the term blind eye came from, the expression. Uh, blind eye, which means to ignore undesirable information, right? The saying comes from a 19th century British naval battle. It's pretty interesting. On April 2nd, 1801, during the Battle of Copenhagen, the British fleet was attacking the combined navies of Denmark and Norway. Three British ships ran aground, so the admiral, Hyde Parker, decided the fire of battle was too hot for Nelson to oppose, so Parker sent an order through his signal flags that the younger admiral, Horatio Nelson, should discontinue action and withdraw. When Nelson heard his own signalman relay the order, he pretended not to hear it. Mesmerized by the thrill of battle, Nelson had no intention of obeying the order, he turned to his captain and said, this day may be the last for us at any moment. Even as a Danish cannonball struck the ship's main mast, scattering splinters all around him. This was typical of Nelson's stubborn and aggressive approach to war. In fact, he'd already lost sight in his right eye in a previous battle. So when he pressed again to respond to Parker's order... Nelson told his flag captain, Thomas Foley, you know, Foley, I only have one eye, 
I have the right to be blind sometimes. And then Nelson held up his telescope to his right eye and said, I really don't see the signal. (laughs) Sometimes we are all like Nelson with one good eye and one blind eye. And when an order comes through from God, we hold up the telescope to the blind eye And as a result, we willfully ignore the leading of the Holy Spirit. Where in your life do you have partial obedience? Where in your life are you turning a blind eye? So are you saying, Pastor, that I have to be perfect 100% of the time? If partial obedience is full disobedience, do we have to get it all right all of the time? Is that what this message is about? No. No. What I'm asking you to admit is that you're not perfect. You're never going to get it all right all the time. And that's a problem. It's a big deal to God that we are only partially obedient and that we don't get it right all the time. It may not seem like a big deal to us from our perspective, but for a holy God who cannot allow even the slightest bit of unholiness in his presence, it's a big deal. God is so serious about his holiness that he cannot even allow a sliver of anything unholy to be identified with him. But he is so serious about his love for you that there is nothing he would hold back from making a way for you and me to be with him. Take a look at this scripture in Romans 8. It says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, God takes his holiness so seriously that he can't allow anything unholy in his presence, but he takes his love so seriously that he wouldn't even hold back his own son from making a way for you and for me to come into his presence. So as we close this message this morning, there are are places in our lives where we are giving partial obedience to God. There are places in our lives where we are missing the mark and not doing all that God has said. The proper response to those places is repentance, grief, The proper response is the same that Samuel has in the very last verse of 1 Samuel chapter 15. It says, Until until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. The proper response is repentance and grief and mourning over our sin. The proper response is to come and say, God, I I have missed the mark. And even when I have gotten 95% of it right, it's not good enough because partial obedience is full disobedience. First, to recognize that we've missed the mark. Second, to fall upon the grace of God available through Jesus Christ. You look at this passage and you might say, well, didn't Saul repent? Not really. You've got to read the larger story. Again and again and again, Saul turns his back on God. Again and again, Saul turns his back on God's word. And if you and I choose to again and again and again turn our back on God's word and reject his word, he'll allow us to do that. But if we would fall upon God's grace through Jesus Christ, then he has made a way for us to come to him. One more scripture this morning. 1 John chapter 4. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. What that atoning sacrifice for our sins basically means is Jesus' full obedience covers your partial obedience. 
The full obedience of Jesus Christ to his heavenly father is enough to make up the cosmic gap that we have created between us and God with our sin. And putting our trust, not in our actions, but in the grace of Jesus Christ is what will bring salvation to us. I'm gonna close in prayer. And as we do, I'm gonna ask you to search your heart. Find that place. Ask God to search your heart. Where are the places in your life and in my life that we have been partially obedient? This message is not to allow and make allowances for those places. This message is to bring us to a place where we say we would be grieved over those places of partial obedience and yet grateful for the grace of God available and the forgiveness of God available through Jesus Christ. And so as our worship team plays, I'm going to ask you to stand in where you are. Um, if you do that now, stand here. And I want to, as our worship team plays and close, we close out this service, we've got a couple minutes. I want to give you a chance to respond to God's voice. There's places in our lives where we have rejected God's word if we continue to reject and reject and reject God's word, we are ultimately rejecting God himself. And so I'm inviting you this morning to embrace the grace of God, to ask forgiveness, to repent of those places in our lives where we have had partial obedience, and to receive that grace that God offers through Jesus Christ. For the next couple minutes, I just want to open up these altars for prayer and really for something we don't do very often grieving, lament over sin in our lives, over places of partial obedience. Asking God, would you show us why something that is such a big deal to you seems like not a big deal to us at times would you show me the places in my life where I have made excuses for not living in obedience to you and when I before I leave this room today to allow me to experience the grace that is in Jesus Christ and to have his power within me to live for him and so we're going to do that this morning. Just take a couple minutes, not long. So if that's where, where you are and where God's calling you to, I encourage you to come, take some time at this altar, pray, grieve, lament, ask God's grace and his forgiveness. And as we do, let's worship and sing this song to the Lord together.